1: Hello, I'm David Kern.
0: And I'm Heidi White.
1: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. I have a question. When we do our little intro like that, it's a new intro for people who are long-term, long-term listeners. This is maybe the fourth episode we've done that. Should, we, should, you in, should both of you be saying and before your names? Or should we be doing, I'm David Kern, and then Heidi just says, I'm Heidi White, and then Tim says, and I'm Tim McIntosh. Like, should there be a comma there, or should we be using
2: two ands? Uh, readers' choice, and I think <laughs> as we have elect—I should say—writers' choice, and we have elected to omit the commas. Our listeners can't see that, so I'm glad that you're bringing it up, David, because now we're kind of walking them through what they can't see—the punctuation. Yeah.
1: I mean, there are some things are very important and some things are not. I will leave it up to your judgment to decide which one of those two things this particular thing is. Heidi, what is your take on this? Because you're the one that says, and I'm Heidi White. Well, instead of just that's saying yeah. I'm Heidi White. Why
0: I was just about to point out this is really a question for me. As the middle namer of myself, I'm the Great one point. saying the and message received. I'm No, away. I'm not making a
1: statement. <laughs> it's just as you were saying it in my brain, it wanted to be a list with, yeah. with an Oxford comma, of course. And, and then you said this the and. State. And for, the, for some reason, my brain said, oh, she said and. No. So I should. Yeah. we should have a conversation about this for three minutes. Um, I Agreed. think, are we done? Is that the end of the conversation? That's a wrap. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a wrap. So this has been this week's episode of Close Reads. We are close <laughs> reading our intro. Uh, we are here to answer your questions about Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. We will do that in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you about um, the upcoming content that we are going to be having on the Close Reads Podcast Network. The first episode of uh, The Merchant of Venice over on the place thing is now live. So you can go listen to that. Episode two will go up next week and so on and so forth. Uh, Tim and Heidi and Sarah Jane have been uh, working their way through that play. Uh, how's that going? Would you, on a scale of one to 10, Tim, where how well would you say your conversations are going?
2: I think they're going really well because I told Heidi and Sarah Jane on the first episode that I changed my role for this, for these episodes so that I am just the table setter. They're providing the appetizers and hors d'oeuvres and entrees. They're doing all the work, so it's going really well.
0: <laughs> That's definitely not true. We're not doing all the work, but we do have a lot of things to say about this play, <laughs> and we keep talking. And poor Tim is just not poor Tim. So kindly, kindly giving us room, or else the conversations would be so so long.
1: Tim, who's your favorite character in The Merchant of Venice? Are you going to say who's your most favorite interesting in the
0: podcast? You're gonna ask, no, him I, would, I would never do that. I she, would never
1: do that on she the, has air. the
0: accent, she wins. Yeah, that does but, help. That yeah. does
1: help. Um, who's your favorite character in The Merchant of Venice, Tim?
2: It's probably Portia, to be honest. I'm not crazy about most of the characters, I think they're all pretty flawed. Uh,
1: you mean like in terms of they're not well drawn by Shakespeare, or no, just- no,
2: I mean that, um. Like even Antonio, the title character, the titular character, is not a particularly admirable guy. I mean, he loves his friends, and in that way, he's an admirable guy. But mm. I think he's uh, anti-Semitic, and I think like Bassanio is kind of a little bit not much of a grown-up until late in the play. I think Portia carries it. Mm. That's How do you what I want I like? You?
0: agreed and i think that's intended by shakespeare the most compelling character by far is shylock but Rat, the, um, yeah favorite's a strong word to use but i might even say yeah, yeah, yeah shylock's my favorite because he's so compelling he's bigger than the play he's so anyway this is i'm about to start talking about it and this is yeah. <laughs> place, go listen to the podcast so. people Yep,
1: <laughs> go listen make sure you subscribe to the plays the thing um Also, we are going to be here on on close reads. We're going to be diving into Marilyn Robinson's novel *Home* next, and so we'll read the uh, first—I think it's like forty-seven pages or something—for that. Um, So, you know, if you don't have a copy of that, it's pretty widely available in libraries and online and bookstores and things like that. Uh, And that will take us right up to the launch of uh, the release of her new book at the uh, Jack, which comes out at. The end of September, I think, September 29th, I believe. And then, of course, we have the Patreon page, the Patreon content, and we are going to be starting our conversation of The Lord of the Rings starting next week. So, we're going to talk about the first chapter and kind of give you a preview of how we're going to approach that book. This, the reading schedules for all of this will go out in an email uh, to the Close Reads newsletter uh, today or tomorrow. Um, Today's Wednesday. So, by the time this airs later today or goes up later today, um, I I'll probably send it out tonight or tomorrow morning. Let's put it that way. Uh, so head over to closereads.substack.com to sign up for that. And we will also post it on Instagram and on Facebook if you're uh, following us in one of those two places. But speaking of Facebook, that brings me to this week's episode. We are here to answer your questions. about Heidi, did you want to say something?
0: No, I just thought I was giving you like a thumbs up for your... Smooth transition
1: there. Oh, oh! See what happened was as you were giving me the thumbs up, I was clicking out of Zoom onto the browser to go get the questions, and so all I saw was your hand go up. It looked like I was was raising my hand. Yeah, I was like, "Ooh, I said something wrong." Um, But okay, let's let's get into some of these questions then. Uh, There's plenty of them, and you all have interesting thoughts on this book, so let's uh, let's hear from you. Okay, so Mary Jo asks a good. Question that kind of is, you know, a good entryway into this. Oh, Tim, you actually answered this on the thread. So I'll let you repeat your answer. For longtime readers, Mary Jo asks of Hemingway, who are no longer so reluctant, thanks to all three podcasters' enthusiasm and insights, what Hemingway book or books do you recommend reading next? Do you recall what you said, Tim? A Movable Feast and
2: Old Man and the Sea.
1: Why, why do you say those?
2: I think uh, Old Man in the Sea is is it's just classic Hemingway. It's all of the kind of like terse, brawny writing style. There's this um, heroic yet defeated main character who's, you know, struggling against the world yet still fights the good fight. Um, And I think there's a little bit of, this is, I think, a little bit unique for Hemingway. There's a little bit of a symbolic question at the end of the story, I think, is really intriguing. It's a great story for students because they'll want to talk about what happens at the end of the story. And I think A Movable Feast, Feast is sort of a retrospective of Hemingway's life in Paris. It was published posthumously, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and it's it was, just yeah. beautiful. It's, it's a kind of a celebration of the city. It's a celebration of being a poor married writer in that gorgeous city surrounded by friends and what it was like, lo- what he kind of had to do to, to keep living. Um, mm. Yeah. I think They're mm. both just terrific.
1: Heidi, what would you say? Is there something else you might add to the, you know, the next step of he- into Hemingway?
0: I think a farewell to arms is another great entry point. That's what a lot of, high schoolers read it is it has more of a plot that an understandable plot which i think is helpful for an introduction to hemingway um Mm -hmm. and it you know as tim said it has all the classic hemingway existential sadness as well as beautiful writing yeah um so i think that one's great too
1: i'm actually I've never read a movable feast, so at the beginning of this series, you two were you know
0: rhapsodizing
1: rhapsodizing yeah, that's probably a nicer that's word for what I was gonna say um and um Hugh were talking about it so i i um am listening to it there's a really good audiobook version, and it's only four hours or something so coming off the thirty seven hours of Lonesome Dove this feels like you know no work at all <laughs> so uh it's a really really good um audiobook so if you want to you know dive into that but uh, want to go the audiobook route the the version on audible is quite good okay Jill has an interesting question which is a theory which we should at least present here I want to hear what you guys think of this so so this is what she says I have a theory I've been trying to work out in my head could be totally off but here goes the sun also rises has all these circles right I keep picturing Brett at the center of one circle and she then uh, Jill quotes the the line where it says dancing around her as an object to worship Oh, there's the bullfighter at the center of another circle with the crowd of worshipers in the bullring. So, is there a third circle that has Jake at the center? Creating a sort of, she says, does it create a sort of Trinitarian overlapping set of circles? Or maybe she she said, or maybe an inverted Trinity since everything in the book is an inversion of conventional motifs and themes. She, she still says, sorry if this is totally off base or weirdly conceptual. I just keep feeling like there's something there, but I can't quite put my finger on that. What do you guys think of this? Heidi, what do you think?
0: I. I think it's really that the circle motif is really important in this book. Um, I think one of Jake's great tragedies is that he's always on the outside of the circles. There's all of this centripetal force that pushes him to the outside, including his wound and his uh, frustrated love. Um, I think mm-hmm. if he was at the center of a circle, it would undermine kind of the pathos of his character. So I don't see that, but I do see um, the the motif of circles is super important for the book. And um, I think that Jill's really onto something and in reading, rereading it again, that's an important, I think, important kind of close read tool to get to the heart of the book.
1: Tim, do you want to add anything? I just want to say, I think this is interesting because I think you're right that he seems like he's on the outside of the circles, but in some ways it feels like it's almost like um, a Venn diagram thing where there's all these circles and a small part of him... Is in a bunch of different circles but he's never really in the center or firmly in any one circle so Mm -hmm. he's kind of got a foot in the circle that's you know lady brett's and some sort of in the bull fighting one because he's sort of a aficionado he loves it but he's not really a part of it and he's like he's kind of he's both on the outside but he sort of dips his water his toe into the water of all these circles um and that i think in some ways you know the fact that he's adjacent at least adjacent to all these circles is what drives a lot of the pathos of the book so i think it's okay. at least an interesting interesting um I, I don't think it's a theory i don't know that i think it's actually observation but i don't know about the um i don't know that i would say there's an inverted trinity thing going on there uh, that might be more than i would want to say <laughs> um, right. let's see here Matthew did because Matthew did say something interesting. He says perhaps in being the narrator of the novel, he becomes the center of the circle of readers reading it, making us dancers around his image as our wounded Fisher King. Which is, I kind of like that. That's mm-hmm. um, good. Okay, so Katie asks, Are, do you have any thoughts on why Hemingway chose the word "pretty" for that last sentence? Tim, this is a classic close read question. Why did the writer yeah. choose a very specific word? <laughs>
2: the last line of the of the book when brett and jake are riding through paris after the parties have ended and she's left the bullfighter and she and jake are back kind of in the same place that they started and they're doing the same sort of thing that we've seen them do over and over which is brett cries for help or attention and jake gives it to her and she says wouldn't would not could not we be wonderful together, or something like that as they're driving around and Jake's line is, "Help me if i help me not to miss it isn't it pretty to think so Yes, and I take that as I take that as I think Jake is growing weary of the game, and I think that." isn't it pretty to think so is kind of just a signal that we've been, we've been play acting and it's pretty to think that we could be good together. But my hunch is that Jake is, has been through it a few too many times. And I don't know that he thinks that he can keep Mm. play acting anymore. Mm.
1: Do you think he's being sarcastic? Is it just like dripping with sarcasm then?
2: I don't think so. I think he cares enough for, for Brett. Uh, He hasn't been, he's been sarcastic other times that he's really cared for Brett. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he's, he's just sort of signaling it's a mirage. Maybe there's a little sarcasm in there, but I think it's more of kind of a signal like, yeah, this is, this, this hope, this idea that we keep, um, you know, unpacking and rolling out whenever we're both sad that we could be happy and good together is a mirage. Mm. And we can't keep doing this. I don't know that they have that conversation that night. My suspicion is that they don't, but I think sometime sometime in the near future, he's not going to show up for her. This is completely subjective. This is just based on what... the novel has given us up until this point. They could go on playing that game for another 15 years, maybe. But I, I read a lot into that. I mean, it's funny that people ask about the word, pretty, because I read a lot into that word. And I, I, it's, it's got so much, uh, is portent the right word? It feels like there's a lot going into that word. And that my read is, yeah, the relationship is almost done.
1: It almost feels like if he had used a more eloquent word or whatever, like a more complicated word, it would have made the line less complicated. The fact that it's sort of a mundane word adds a sort of drama. It heightens it in a way. Heidi, do you want to add anything?
0: Yeah, I do. Because I think that they're going to go around the same tree forever. Mm. I think that that's the meaning of the word pretty. I think that it's like there's pretty is it's not really a synonym for beautiful. It's not. It's there's there's a cheapness, a veneer to it, there's a fragility to prettiness, whereas there's not to beauty. Hmm. Everybody knows that a pretty woman won't be pretty forever. Everybody knows that pretty is transitory and it it disapparates, it changes, it decays. Uh, whereas beauty is objective. I know that that's an ongoing debate, but, you know, I definitely take the stand that beauty is objective and, um, and pretty is not, and mm. that pretty is temporary. And so I think, and fragile, and I think that's the meaning of what he's saying. Isn't it fragile? Isn't it transitory? Isn't it a little sad because it's going to fade to think so? Um, and... Because I do, I agree with Tim that there's um, that Jake knows that his that he's never going to be with Brett, but I don't. I definitely read the end as just another time around the same tree. The same thing will happen next year. When the same thing will happen the year after, um, the circles of um, of repetition that we see in Ecclesiastes, like vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Um, the seasons come, the seasons go. There's a time for everything, and and we will, as humans, come back to the vanity of life. So, I, but I think that the word pretty is meant to express the fragility and the falseness of mm. their attachment. It's not a beautiful attachment.
1: Well, let's use that as a segue into this next question that Ilya asks. Oh, where is it? Okay, here's she says Jake and Brett met in the hospital when Jake was injured, so they never had a chance to develop a relationship that did not include Jake's injury. Do you think that their romance or even their friendship would have lasted or would have begun in the first place if not for the tragedy of being unable to consummate it? So great question. If if what you're saying is true. To what extent is his injury the thing that keeps it fragile? And to what extent is it something aside from the injury, I guess, is the part of that question that I didn't need to add.
0: <laughs> right. I think that there's, interestingly enough, I would turn this around. And I'm really curious to hear what you all the two of you think about this because anytime you're speculating about something that's outside of the text, it's completely Mm -hmm. open to interpretation and it says a lot more about you as the reader than the book. Right. So I would argue that it's mystical. Yes. I would argue that his injury (laughs) is what makes their relationship permanent, not transitory because she cycles through men so quickly because she can sleep with them and discard them. Uh, and I don't think she's a monster. I don't think she's a man eater. I think she's just sad. And this is one of the things that distracts and fills her the same way getting drunk does, right? So she's, I think if it wasn't for Jake's injury, he would have just been another one of the men that had been, you know, that got to sleep with her and was then discarded. But because he's injured, that's what keeps this permanent tie between them so that they can kind of subsist on their longing for each other, but never consummate it, which creates uh, this super dysfunctional long-term bond between them. Hmm. What do y'all think about that? 100%. Yeah,
2: I, compl- yeah, I think that's exactly right, Heidi. I think if they were able to consummate their relationship, I think they would have lasted a couple more weeks. And I don't know that Jake would ever hear from Brett again. It, it, and now the, the question on the other side is, um, if they'd been able to consummate their relationship, would Jake have ma- been stayed in love with exactly. Brett? And I don't yes. even know that he would. Do you think that he would stay in love with her? Because I, don't, I no. don't know that he would.
0: I don't yeah. either. I think it is their wounds that creates the bond, which I think is yeah. at the heart of the book. Because, yeah. uh, because their, their bond is commentary on the larger social issues and then commentary beyond that on vanity, vanity, all vanity under the sun. And so those concentric circles, their relationship the society they're living in the universal question of vanity are all created by this bond that mm-hmm. they have because they're mutually wounded and wounding each other and i think that's again goes to the comment about how pretty it is right it's not beautiful there's but it's it's enough to create this veneer of attraction fascination and attachment but not enough to be beautiful or meaningful yeah or healing
2: yeah
1: Okay, let's move on because we have lots of questions here. As always, Q&A episodes will feel a little abrupt. But Amy asks, what is the purpose of Bill? I'm I'm dramatizing <laughs> the fact that it's all caps. Um, Heidi, you, no,
0: you commented in response.
1: What an insightful question. So that means that you get to you No, get
0: to reply. I actually want to hear the answer from the two of you. I'm confused about this character every time I read this book.
2: I I am confused by Bill also. I'm so happy that he's there because I think he's funny and he's right. playful and he's I think delightful. he's yeah. And I think he and Jake really enjoy each other's company. Um by the way, we skipped the question which some modern commentators have put forward which is are Bill and Jake interested in each other? And I, I don't think so. I think that's hard. I mean, you could, you could. That's like, why we skipped it. <laughs> you could read something between the lines. I don't know, though. I don't know if that's there. But I, I think. I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss Bill as saying it's comic. Re- he's comic relief because I think he's more important than that. Um, but what role? I don't know.
0: Yeah. What's the purpose? Why isn't he? He's like not. He's attracted to Brett, but he's not destroyed the way that the other characters are by this yeah. experience. I'm yeah. curious. What do you think, David? Craftsman-wise, our, our commentator on craft.
1: What's the purpose of any of these characters? Like, Can you point to any, any other character in the book and say, I know exactly what the purpose of this character is?
0: In the story? Yeah. I feel like I can, yeah. but is that part of your yeah i I feel like i I could in the in kind of the narrative of mutual destruction in Pamploma that he doesn't seem to participate or he participates but doesn't he seems intact throughout troubled but intact
1: well, I think you just described his purpose then,
0: yeah to be kind of a stabilizing force.
1: I actually, so (laughs) I actually don't believe what I just said. I actually (laughs) think that, um, I mean, you just, you just said what could be the reason. I do think so, but I don't believe that Hemingway writes that way. Like, I don't think he thinks of these characters. Like, I don't think he is trying to create some sort of like an archetypal system where a character represents something or where a character is like, like, especially in this book. Like, I think he would say, people come and go like, and you run into characters all the time. You know, you're living your life. You run into, you know, somebody who either enlivens or destroys some experience. And sometimes, and then after the fact, you're like, well, that was weird that that guy was there. Um, or I wonder ever happened to that guy. Um, or I should write that guy a letter or, you know, search for that person on Facebook. Um, and I, I just don't think that Hemingway felt a need to To answer a question like that, because I don't think he thought about characters that way, um, and to that sounds like maybe a cop out, but um, like I don't, you know, I just don't think that he was he was being Dostoevsky or Shakespearean about his characters very often. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why he is both either beloved or disliked by a wide swath of people because he doesn't always make it clear what the purpose of a character is. Uh, and I think he would say that that's mirroring what life is like. But that would you would you consider that a cop out?
2: I think it's a cop out, David, because I think the other characters. I'm with Heidi. Every other major character in the book plays a, plays a clear role in the rising plot action, in the ultimate climax of the play of the falling action. They all kind of play a role, but I honestly feel like feel like. If Bill was plucked out, he might not, uh, the structure of the book would wobble a little bit, but would still be intact. And so for me, it's kind of the question of if all of those other characters do seem to play such a vital role in the structure of the book, into the character development of the other characters, why does this one not seem to? If there was three other characters, I probably wouldn't ask the question, but he's the only one that I can really see.
1: You're saying like you could pull Bill out and the book would be the same?
2: Of course it would be different, but I think it would be largely unchanged. And I think the other characters would be largely unchanged.
1: Well, okay, so my... Would we even... I think I might take issue with the first part of what you were saying there. Um, Like if we said, if we had a discussion about what's the denouement of this book, what's the rising action, what's the falling action, would we even agree?
2: I think we'd be close. Maybe. Um,
0: Yeah, it seems like a very tightly constructed narrative when you read it closely and a very loosely constructive narrative when you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, your first reading of this book is like, what is even going on? Yeah. This is just about people traveling around Europe and drinking. And that is not the soul, the heart of the book. And right. Um. so, yeah, and I do agree with him. I think you could pull him out. But other than the fishing scene, he's necessary in the fishing scene. Um,
1: well, okay. Uh, let's take, hold on, hold on. What do we mean by purpose?
0: I mean, what does it serve in the narrative? Like what, what, um, if you're writing a tightly constructive narrative, each character does something there, like fulfills a purpose. You need a Robert Cohn here because you need the love triangle in order to create the mutual destruction. Um, you know, and sometimes it's minor. Um, you know, you need the count is a pretty minor character. Uh, he lets us well, he lets uh, us in on who on who Brett is at the beginning. So I don't
1: well, Bill's Bill. You have to have okay. If we're talking about it that way, you have to have somebody who's outside of the. It's not a love triangle. It's like a love quartet
0: right, quintet. A love circle.
1: And yeah. he's the <laughs> essential. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, he's the one that's outside of it. And so, in a way, he then represents the reader.
0: So. You said earlier that he, um, <laughs> you said earlier, David, that he's not, uh, that Hemingway doesn't write like Dostoevsky or Shakespeare. He's not Dostoevskian or Shakespearean or something, I think mm-hmm. was the phrase you used. But yeah. maybe he is Shakespearean because earlier you said, or earlier in the podcast, several podcasts ago, you said that he's... Um, Like very influenced by Shakespeare, and then oh no, I agree with that. I was just
1: thinking this particular, this one particular way,
0: right? But here's where I'm going to say maybe you are totally right. Maybe Bill is the outside character, the Antonio, the um, the Sebastian character, not Sebastian. Who's the anyway? The leftover character, the one at the end who doesn't get the The Horatio. Yeah, Um, that provides. Something for the main character then. So anyway, that's that's another Well, I do think
1: he like offers a sense of um uh rootedness or balance for Jake because when yeah, when he leaves, true. Jake kind of spirals. You know, like he does things with Jake that are aside from his pining over the fact that he can't be with Brett. Take go they go fishing together and stuff like that. So he does seem to be like a sort of balancing force against the uh despair that could can uh, overcome Jake. Um but that's not like that doesn't answer the question of what he does for the plot.
0: I I think it might though. I I think that that's the that works that he provides stability and he he demonstrates to the reader what a good friend that Jake is, not just to Brett but to other men, and that's important.
1: I haven't like talked about this on the show yet, but I'm sort of I've been contemplating a theory for Hemingway that I that I think largely his characters. I don't know exactly how to say this because I haven't thought and I haven't gotten far enough in my thinking to express it properly. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that expression point of my contemplation, but I think that Hemingway's books and his are less driven by action and more by perspectives and how points of views points of view points of views points of view points of view evolve and and like are informed by other points of view and, and then how that impacts action less than how actions how people make actions happen if that makes sense And so I think he, I think in a lot of his books, he's giving us these colliding perspectives and he doesn't often comment on which perspective is right. And so sometimes you get a character like Bill who sort of gets you outside of all these colliding perspectives and kind of represents the reader and can sort of be a a sort of balancing force against all those colliding perspectives. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like I said, I hadn't gotten to the point where I was <laughs> I was ready to actually express what I'm thinking about. But I, I just think that he is, I think that for Hemingway is extreme, I think he is way more interested in points of view and perspective than he is in the action of a book. Then um, it's not, that's not unique to, to Hemingway, of course. You
0: know, that's insightful. I think that that's true. And I think that's why exactly what you're saying is why when you first read this particular novel, uh, you you do have that response of what is this book about? <laughs> like that's because you, in order to get to the heart of the book, you you have to you have to put yourself in every single character's place, behind every single character's eyes, uh, or else it's just you know an exercise in frustration at people being idiots, right? So. But when you do that, and then there's the cultivation of empathy that we've talked about, then you really start to see a prism, right? Multiple perspectives on the same kind of banal event, banal event, and that's um, uh, that. That I think will take people into the soul of a Hemingway novel, and this one. That's super helpful for this one in particular, David.
1: Okay, let's let's move on. Um, Tim, Wendy asks, would one need to know the time period and events and more backstory of when this was written to be able to fully appreciate the story? It seems the story might be difficult to understand and appreciate since this book isn't very plot driven and the author doesn't give us information, give us the information in the book.
2: What do you think about that? I think that it's, this book is, it is crucial to remember that it's happening in the back shadow of World War One. I think we talked about this maybe on the third episode, but I I think if someone's teaching this book, I I prefer to kind of like let students launch into a book without kind of um, framing the book too much. Kind of like let the, let the students experience really um, be free and provide some guidance et cetera, et cetera. But I think for, for the most part, especially 20th century literature, I prefer to not frame books before students start reading them. Maybe for something really complex like Dante's Inferno and Purgatorio. and Things but, born
1: out of completely different cultures.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there it's completely fair and really needed to give a frame. But I think for 20th century books, I feel a little bit reticent to do that. That being said, I think that before students start to read or before we start to read, The Sun Also Rises, I think talking about the devastation of World War I is crucial. And it's not just devastation wrought by military exploits, which they were horrific, by the way. It's probably just, I mean, they were absolutely horrific because you've got a... Basically, and you've got old world armies with old world tactics fighting with new world weaponry. And so you, there are stories, s- story after story after story about the early part of the war when um, machine gunners would sit up in nests and just mow down hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers who are climbing the hill because they had to take the hill. And they had no other; had no alternative strategy for taking a machine gun nest other than to charge it over and over and over. It was devastating. I think the kind yeah. of cultural and psychological and spiritual uh, destruction that happened during and after World War One is really hard to underestimate. And I read this quote from Annie Dillard that that was kind of the time that the West kind of saw itself as before World War one as kind of having a common project. That common project was, uh, imbued with a lot of Christian values. It was v- imbued, imbued with, um, this sense that the entire world would be civilized according to kind of Western ideas. And when World War one hit, that those ideals begin to suffer, and I think they begin to suffer. Um, and I think this is the first generation that's kind of realizing what's going on like how this common project is no longer going to be viable. Mm. And so they're lost, they're spinning, they're not they can't participate together in that project anymore. So what are they going to do instead?
0: They don't know. They just don't know.
2: Hmm. I think that
1: what you're talking about is good evidence why subjects are, are not always the best idea. <laughs> like I think if you, cause you could, I mean, like if you're if you're if you're having to separate your English from your history,
2: yeah, it complicates yeah. your
1: process. But if you if you're t- looking at these things as liberal arts that you're studying in, you know, cooperation with one another, then there isn't this weird question of well, you know, you could read this book along the same around the same time you're teaching early twentieth century history along with other books, and then these books begin to have conversations with one another, and you don't have to answer every question. Uh, because the very fact that they're having conversations with one another becomes revelatory for the students. Right. Uh, but when you have to separate things into classes with subjects and read things on their own, um, and those subjects you know, might be it makes dis- it more complicated. disjointed
2: chronologically. Like yeah, someone might exactly. be reading, you know, whatever. Um, paleolithic, you know, evidences in history while at the same time doing a novel about world war one, the student then doesn't get to kind of like cross pollinate his imagination and memory and analytic abilities with and put together that the military history of world war one and the kind of cultural history after world war one to see those two things is really informed by each other. If you do it, like if if you separate them into subjects and those subjects subjects are Chronologically disjointed,
1: and and when you study them together, you you experience the expression of the experiences that the people were going through. Yeah, you know, like it feels appropriate and right, and you and you sense it, you feel it. You know, whereas if you read, you know, Camus or Hemingway or something outside of, or 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 you know, even Dante, for example, outside of the period, you don't feel or get us the sense. It's pure. It's it's your your um ability to, to to kind of get the context is purely intellectual, whereas if you're you know studying all these things together as a sort of cohesive project, if you will, then you begin to you know sense it and feel it and it becomes more comprehensive in terms of your in terms of how you learn it well said
2: I, I want to add something David, Heidi and I kind of made a plea for this book earlier in in an earlier episode, that um, it's tempting to read The Sun Also Rises as a sort of philosophical assertion of new nihilistic ideals. And I think if you read this book kind of independently of World War I, you could, you could do that. I think it'd still be completely unfair to do that, but it would be tempting to do that. Um, and so, I, I think this is another. This is a good example of a, a reason why books should be read in a historical context and not just, like you were saying, David. You know, plucked from um, an anthology and inserted into a subject class, because I think independent of understanding what happened in World War One, especially what happened culture with World War One after you know all the destruction by these supposedly Christian nations, then then if you don't know what just happened, then it's really tempting to say this was an agenda. Hemingway's driving an agenda. And I think, and I think Mm -hmm. I'm speaking for Heidi also, correct me if I'm wrong, Heidi. Well To me, Hemingway is more responding to the times and articulating the times more than he's driving an agenda. It's not to say that Hemingway didn't have an agenda. I think he had a, a very particular articulatable philosophical viewpoint. I think that viewpoint became more articulated in later works. But I think this book especially is an articulation less of a philosophy and more an observation of the times.
0: Hmm. Which goes to what David said last week about him being a journalist. Yeah, um, yeah. He's he's, re- he's reporting. This is this is how people are feeling. This is what people are doing. Yeah. Like, there you I, go, reader.
1: <laughs> I get this. I get this weird. I get fr- you get this weird sense that people are like, well, that Hemingway guy was just a bummer, and he just created like yeah. he thought up out of thin air this like bummer of a story that you know, and exactly. he just presented it that way, and that exactly. and so I don't want to read that. Right. But it's an expression, it's an articulation of the way the world was experience- was living, you know, of the with the things that they were going through, um, and it's both a it's both a window into that and a mirror of it, and and a way for us to be able to you know to experience it, to, to understand it. Um, go ahead, Tim.
2: When you when you when a person attends when when you attend a funeral for somebody who's really important to you, um when a speaker from behind the mic speaks on behalf of that person's life and articulates what who that person was and what they lived for and why they were important, there's this great sense of I experience a great sense of relief and a great sense of... It's almost... Um, I'm sure the Germans have a word for this. There's a sort of joy in hearing it named. It's
1: the Germans. <laughs> yeah. Like, They've got a, they got a weird word for everything.
2: Right. Especially the kind of emotional states, like kind of like conflicted emotional states. What's I, I, the I just, opposite of schadenfreude? <laughs> that's, what, that's the word that made me think the Germans surely got a name for this. But you know, when, some, when someone can name a person's life and describe the kind of life that they live, there's, a, there's a, almost like a relief that I feel in attending that funeral because this person understands it and articulated it to us and for us. And I think that's what this book is. I think that someone reading this book in 1930, having fought in the war, would feel a great sense of relief and maybe even a glimmer of joy that somebody else could name it. Somebody else could say, yeah. this is what it feels like.
1: Yeah, today mm-hmm. we say it's what's being felt, heard, or known, or yes, seen. Yes, right, right. Tim, right. what are you holding on your lap?
2: It's a what lap desk. It's a, oh, it's like a little okay. lap desk, yeah.
1: I see, I see. You're holding it, I thought it was like a picture frame with like a the bellows of a blacksmith shop or something. right.
2: <laughs> As disheveled as my cottage is, it would not surprise me that I would be. I mean, it's entirely possible I'd be holding the bellows of a blacksmith shop. Readers, <laughs> there's may a donkey.
1: <laughs> there's a donkey going in circles, pulling, yeah. a
2: <laughs> grinding grain. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, yeah, people, you you were so into the like 18th century, 19th century Russians that you've just recreated that environment yes. in your in your cottage.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm smaller. gonna go. I'm gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go pull water from the well after we get done here. Yeah, no, I yeah. was gonna you say you might mile. be interested. No, this is my last day in Seattle. I'm moving home to Atlanta beginning tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, I start the drive. It's a
0: big day. It's
2: a really big day. It's a very big
0: transition.
2: Bittersweet day. So, are, you, are the, you driving? I'm driving. I'm making multiple stops along the way. I'm making a couple of longer stops along the way, but. The drive begins tomorrow morning.
1: Don't let anyone break into your car and hotbox while you're stopped at some hotel somewhere. That would be bad. But it would give you a nice full circle story for the podcast. It sure would. Wow. <laughs> okay, next, uh, next question. Tim, you mentioned in the first podcast that you finally realized who the group of young men were at the bar.
2: Yeah. Who were they? I think they were um, a group of gay men. I'm pretty confident that's who they were. Ah, and did we okay. talk about this
0: off the air? Hardy, did we talk about this off the air? I don't think so.
2: Yeah. Um, and I've I've talked to a couple other friends of mine who've read this book a few times. I'm like, who's the group that Brett first appears with? And they think the same thing. So I think it's I don't know what page that's, that's on, but that's
0: the assumption. I made that assumption. You
2: made that assumption. I, I don't know. It yeah. took me three or four reads before I, I put that together.
1: Men who like Jake are not a threat, essentially.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's something funny yeah. about Jake does not like them, even though presumably hmm. he does not perceive them as a threat. There's there's something. And maybe he just doesn't like gay men. Maybe that's what it is. Um, but it's, it's curious because his response to them is not the sort of response that he has when uh, he figures out that Robert Cone is has been lurking. I think he's a little bit more defensive when Robert Cohn has been lurking, but not so with uh, the guys he sees at the bar.
1: Okay, uh, let's see. Rachel asks, the Lost Generation's wound, um, World War I, happened in Europe, but maimed Americans like Jake choose to stay there. America is not painted as a place of home or healing. Europe isn't either, but it is a place of release. Self-medication is possible here. Could you comment on prohibition and what Hemingway might be saying about the US? Has it too failed the lost generation? So, is the implication here that because of prohibition, the lost generation wasn't giving veterans a way to cope? That, that's interesting. Um, do you think that Hemingway, in his canon in general, has lax faith in the American, um, the, the capability, the potential of America to be a place of healing?
0: I think that's a really good question. Um I I think in my contemplations of the lost generation um and the expatriate movement to Europe by this circle of writers and thinkers and artists my my attention has been more on the question of Displacement the question of feeling as as though being a there there's no obligation to their homeland um, they can drift about and find someplace they just like better um, but it's it it's not a consumer mentality um because the consumer mentality tends to have the um, kind of at the heart of it this sense of looking for The perfect place that's going to fulfill them. And the last generation doesn't seem to expect fulfillment at all. They expect that they're going to be sad and drift around uh, from place Mm -hmm. to place and from people to Mm -hmm. people and from uh, sensory experience to sensory experience. Uh, They're people inherently of the body, the food is better in Europe, right? The wine is better in Europe. Um, It's prettier. There's stuff to look at that we don't have. And so I'll just go there and drift around knowing I'm never going to be happy or fulfilled. Um, And, and so it seems less of a rejection of the American ethos and more of, or the American experiment, the American ideal. It's less of a rejection of it and more of just a, a sense of displacement and drifting. Um, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that there's not a rejection of the American ideal, uh, but I think my attention has been more on the sense of displacement the lack of of a of a feeling of, it's more just a feeling of constant exile exile from themselves exile from home exile from each other exile from the moorings of the past as tim so eloquently uh, addressed a few moments ago
1: yeah personally i think that if if it's if it is a criticism of that or an expression of that you know incapability of america i think it's more just it, it's more of an expression of that because they didn't go home like hemingway right. this is a clef someone else mentions hemingway just mm-hmm. he's writing about his own experiences and he didn't go home so i mean right. not then so um he's not home in this you know in what he's describing here so i if it's a description i think it's an inadvertent description of that mm-hmm. more than it is like a direct uh like sort of reflection or contemplation on that. Do you want to add anything, Tim, or should I ask (laughs) you the next question?
2: There's something also that's going on in the United States around this time. And Hemingway might be part of the first kind of classrooms of students to experience this. If Higher education is beginning to shift its gaze away from the local and more toward the national. So I, I think... Wendell Berry would have a real complaint about kind of educationally what's happening in the United States around this time. Instead of focusing on if you were born and raised in Kansas City, instead of focusing on the kind of agrarian situation, the political situation in Kansas City and around Kansas City, then instead the preoccupation is going to be with washington dc politics and with new york economies and i think that sort of begins a an ideological displacement for that generation that really um is adrenalized by the fighting of world war one so i wonder if that's also contributing to this law the sense of being a lost generation that we're not Mm -hmm. tied anymore to the locale that we grew up in. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Okay, abruptly again, let's transition to this next question. Nicole asks, Tim, I'll just ask you this one and then if you want to jump in, you can, but um, why does Jake refer to Robert Cohn always with first and last name, but none of the other characters by their full names? Only in dialogue is he referred to as Robert. And then Reagan points out that most of the other characters, their names are shortened to Mike, Jake, Bill and so forth. Robert could have been Bob or whatever, but Hemingway doesn't do that. So there's like a formality that's left in his his name there. Curious if you have any thoughts on this.
2: I took it exactly as the writer of the question put it. There's a formality to it. And I think that formality is a distancing, has a distancing effect. Um like when I talk about you, David, to Heidi, I never say David Kern. And if I did say David <laughs> Kern, there's right, there's a
0: sort of like you call him DK.
2: I all do the call time. him DK sometimes. But to call him David Kern would be to sort of illuminate right. something that doesn't need to be illuminated, his last name. So why am I doing it? I this think doesn't it,
1: explain why Heidi refers to her husband as Scott White. The Scott White. Oh, the Scott White, sorry. It's, right. it's yeah. both yeah. honorific and tender. It's honorific and
2: tender at the same yes. time.
1: You're right. You're right. You're very right
2: yeah I her, think we all refer to him maneuver. as the scott white as well so he Scott white
1: yeah perfect i like that answer how did you want to add to that nope okay <laughs> ann asks about baths i don't know if you saw this one i noticed mm-hmm. at one point that there are at least three times where brett says she needs to bathe they're all kind of odd like before dinner i feel like mm-hmm. something is being done there or what it or when it happens so often i think that is a, an excellent point there it happens a lot and so we might maybe he wants us to take note of it uh do you have any thoughts on this
0: Yes, I have many thoughts on this, but we didn't get to it in the podcast because as we kept saying, there's so much in this little book. There's so much in this. Every word is carefully chosen. <laughs> as we always say, there um, is a Q&A episode. Yes, that's right. Uh, but yes, I think that uh, her, she, she talks about bathing a lot and that's a sacramental image, right? The idea of cleansing mm-hmm. um, and preparation. Uh, and... Uh, Also, there's, you know, there's a very symbolic, baptism is a very uh, deep symbol in all of literature. But if if characters are going into water and coming out of water, pay attention or referring to water. Uh, So, yeah, the idea of bathing, I think, has the cleansing, the preparation, and also the death and rebirth, which she can't ever seem to achieve, right? There's As you point out so rightly, David, I really want to talk about this at some point, there's no catharsis in this book. It's missing. Like there is no sense of ever, Brett, going under the water to die and coming up reborn. So she's always talking about needing to bathe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's significant.
1: Yeah, and uh, Matthew, in another comment, um, he kind of comments on my points about Catholicism from last week, but he points out that there's a lot of cleansing images throughout the book, shaving, polishing, bathing, swimming, rain, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens a lot. So, yeah. Do we, should, we, should we jump on that? Matthew's question as a transition?
0: Yeah, I've been.
1: Yeah, I think we Okay, should. so I said um, something about how Jake appreciates the blood. Um, and then there's this Hemingway's wine is good company. And so he asks if there, this could suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake. Could his wound be means by which he might participate with the gourd bull and the crucified Christ? Uh, in short, is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate, or is he simply wandering? And then he also mentions any uh, ways that O'Connor might. Um, uh, have any common ground with Hemingway so we can touch on all of that I would love to know what you guys think of this because I have a feeling that we might disagree I think so we,
2: okay well I think we might also
1: yeah no, no no you guys go first I'm not <laughs> like uh, okay so could this wound be the? okay there's a there's a couple okay I'll go first I'll go first just a so, fair is fair so Could it suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake? Here's how I would answer I'm going to go through this whole question here and I'll give my take on it. And then I'll let you guys respond and tell me that I'm wrong. Okay. So there's multiple parts to this question. Could this suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for Jake? Yes, it could. I believe it does. Next question. Could his wound be the means by which he might participate with the gourd bull and the crucified Christ? Probably not. I don't think that's what Hemingway is saying. In short, is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate? Yes, because that's what all books are about. Or is he simply wandering? Yes, that is also what all books are about. So that is my take.
0: That is what all books are about. I, I don't think I disagree with you. I, I think that Hemingway is, I do, not, I do not think he is making a case for return as a culture to the faith, as other Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor are doing. And we talked about that, that last week. Yep. Um,
1: he is way, to me, it's way more individual. Right. It's way more and about the struggle. I don't,
0: and I don't know how Hemingway would answer this question. If you were to ask him this question, is the church and the old traditions that we have lost in World War One that anchoring of civilization, the moorings of civilization, if we were to return to them, would they be sufficient for modern problems now? I don't know how he would answer that question. I don't think he
1: would even think about that question. That's the problem. That,
0: I agree. I, I agree with that completely. And so I think that's the case I was trying to make last week, um, which, you know, at three in the morning, you're like, that's what I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> but um, I could be wrong this about that, This is why that, Hemingway though, is complicated he and great, me. though. Exactly. I completely agree with that. And so I don't, but as everything you just said about that's what all books are about is a pilgrimage back to God, right? And that usually I, I think can't be articulated. True. That usually can't be articulated, sometimes not even by the author, right. which is why I think some, that's why I hold author intent less sacred than many people in my profession because sometimes i think authors get to something more profound than they even intend because every single human being is on a pilgrimage back to god and even if you don't know that about yourself you're going to put that in your art whether you mean to or not and that i think happens in this book i so i don't think i disagree with what you just said uh, in any point at all but I don't know if that's what Hemingway was trying to do.
1: I don't well, know. Well, but that, uh, see, I don't, yeah. Okay. That's why I say could could this the stuff about blood and cleansing and shaving and all and and atonement, all these sorts of things that mm-hmm. this book is about um could they offer suggest some sacramental vision of salvation and purification for jake i say that yes they do suggest that and that and i believe that hemingway's work hemingway's life was steeped in the notion of mm-hmm. theology and sacramental visions of the world and even if he was sometimes unsure of what that meant and how to express his dissatisfaction with it and if he wasn't always if he didn't always like feel positively towards that which seems to be the case his life was still steeped like in those ideas, and so I think that that I think that all of his work has okay. those ideas at the core of them, even if he wouldn't have put it that way. But that's why I take that's why I don't think that could his wound be the means by which he might participate with the Gord bull and the crucified Christ? I don't think he would say that. I don't think that Hemingway would. Mm-hmm. I don't think he created that scenario or imagined that notion, s- such as it is, to to. Make some sort of um, O'Connor-like expression of the faith, but right. I also Agreed. don't know that Hemingway would say that a wound can't be the means by which a person is actually healed. Um, right. I don't. I I don't think Hemingway was a nihilist, nor do I necessarily think he was a cynic, as we've been talking about. Um, no, I think he.
0: You can't grieve and be a cynic. It's impossible. Like you, I mean, he can't be openly grieving and be cynical. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's a statement I need to understand more, but I think I agree with it. <laughs> um, because, but a yeah, cynic, I,
2: if you're gr- if grieving is a sign of caring for loss, and a cynic that wouldn't care about something being lost, is that the idea, Heidi? Yeah, yeah, that oh, I is. See, Okay, yeah.
1: But you know, Matthew asked the question: Is Jake experiencing a pilgrimage toward God that he cannot articulate, or is he simply wandering? Those are the same thing. Like, <laughs> they are. that's what wandering they is. Are. We're always experiencing- But does
0: Hemingway- that's the question. Does that's Hemingway the question. know Yeah, that, does right? Hemingway
2: know it or is it like, sort of an accident? is he
0: saying that? Or is it just that's the reality and Hemingway doesn't know? And I don't know the answer to that. I, I look at this book and I I'm think- I'm not even
1: interested in that question, honestly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But I think it matters because I think that's what Hemingway sets him apart from other Catholic authors of his day. I don't think you can make the case that he belongs with Graham Greene and Flannery O'Connor. I think he is- I think, I think he yeah, would say, like and I the, think he what is he actively belong with them? saying,
1: like he, like I mean, if,
0: he's not the same school. He is lost generation, even though he's raised Catholic and he can't let go of it. He is lost generation. He is not the, the 20th century Catholic authors who are advocating a return to yeah, what has been fine. lost. Yeah. In terms and of I,
1: categorizing them. Yeah, that's fine.
0: Right. And I think I he would say, that. although I think he would say. That the church and the moorings of civilization are not sufficient for the problems that we have today, and for the people and their lostness. And, it, and I th- does this whole dispute
2: yeah. um, hinge on intention that the other authors that we're naming as Catholics who long for a return, O'Connor being representative, they are intentional about articulating. Um, characters who are kind of in the throes of wrestling with their relationship to God and culturally with like what's happening. Whereas Heidi, are you are you kind of assenting to David's point that Hemingway might be articulating might be articulating Catholic notions, um, but those but he's neither advocating for a return nor uh, intentionally marking out kind of like Catholic terrain for his characters. It's more like, um, how do I describe it? It's more like the relics of his upbringing and his imagination.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say I don't think that he's posing the church as a solution to the modern problem.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's true. I don't, I didn't mean to express that. I think he is posing the church necessarily as the solution to the modern problem. I think that the difference between Green and O'Connor is that largely they're responding to people like Hemingway. Mm -hmm. Like the expression of- Totally
0: agree. Their experience,
1: like- these things come in waves. Like they're not just like sitting at the table next to each other and having conversation and writing at the same time. Like Hemingway is presenting an experience and his life and his world is saturated with sacramental concepts and images. And so he's expressing his experience in a way that has been saturated by those things. And then you get people like Wah and you get Green and you get O'Connor who are then responding to that expression, you know, another generation later. Although Green was, Mm -hmm. I think, born only 10 years after uh, Hemingway, maybe something like that. Um, But he's mainly thought of as, you know, World War II ish era. Um, I I lost track of what I was saying by trying to be precise there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But the point is, all the subordinate clauses.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They're responding. I did. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I need to write more like Hemingway. They're responding (laughs) to, to the response that Hemingway had to the world that he was living in and they're offered, they're saying, you know, they're, they're more hopeful ultimately in the things that Hemingway was saturated by. And so I think his, I think his work because it's saturated by that is more hopeful than people give it credit for. Even if he isn't purposefully saying this thing can solve all of our problems, but what is he saying can solve all of our problems? Um, I just don't think that's, like I said, he's a journalist. Whereas, you know, if O'Connor has got that tinge of theologian in her, in a way that that Hemingway doesn't seem to be interested in.
2: Um, I, I, I would qualify that by saying in this book, because I do think in a book like For Whom the Bell Tolls, I think that his kind of brand of masculine existential courage is a philosophical point that he's really trying to articulate. But I think in this book, yeah, he's fair. much yeah, more yeah. the journalist.
1: Yeah. Uh, should we move on? <laughs> we yeah, have sure. a lot of questions left and not a lot of time. Why is Robert Cohn never drunk, says Bianca?
0: I think that's not his vice. I think one of the things about Robert Cohn is that he's um, he's still trying to manage his life in order to be heroic, and he fails. And part of... Uh, Part of that kind of descent into failure is he gets drunk that night uh, that one time um, but I, I think if he was just a a, a drunk like the rest of them <laughs> uh, he I think it's a point of character development that shows that he's a little bit different from the rest of the people in the circle um and another way of painting him as an outsider according to the rules of the social group. And it also is another way of painting him as at least attempting some kind of moral high ground and sense of control and restraint. Um, what he wants is Brett. That's what he wants. He's not there to get drunk and party.
1: All right. Again, it's abrupt, I know. Tim. Mm-hmm. Why did Robert Cohn compare Brett to Circe and not say Venus or Helen or even Pandora? Was it a fair comparison, or does it show more about Cohn than Brett? That's from Ilya. So the the comparison that Brett makes, uh, or that
2: Robert makes of Brett, she asks really good questions. Ilya does, and like credit to her for those, uh, very appropriate kind of alternative, you know, female symbols. I think that Robert Cohn... Is as much as I love Brett. I think he's right. I think she turns men into swine. I think their behavior becomes swinish around her, Uh, and so I think that's the reason why. Rather than, it's a little bit
1: of insight on Robert's part.
2: I think so. I think so. I mean, we can see it. It's it's right there in the text. The men, like the way that Mike acts when, um, the way that Robert acts when when. uh, you know, he figures out that he's being ignored by Brett. He begins to act like a swine, the way that Mike acts when she gets together with a bullfighter. He acts like a swine.
0: I think Jake too.
2: Yeah. Jake's doing things that he are not in his best interest and not. Yeah. So I think it's a a good illusion, a fair illusion.
1: Um, let's see here. Uh, so I don't know if we'll have time to do this. Sean suggests, he said he'd like to hear us talk about uh, the Jake's time in San Sebastian and the baptismal imagery that accompanies his swimming. Uh, we've talked a little bit about some of those, about the way that um, swimming is suggestive of baptism and cleansing and things like that. But he also mentions that um, a comparison of the two cab rides that Jake and Brett take might yield some interesting implications for the ending. I don't know if we have time to do that uh, here on the show, um, but I was thinking about that when I was reading and we just kind of didn't get around to it. But that would be an uh, interesting exercise for anybody who wants to um, to to do that. But do either of you have any thoughts on either of those two things um, that you can express quickly on a Q&A episode?
2: I think that immersing oneself in water, a traditional form of baptism, and Jake going swimming, I think that's a... Very reasonable, correlative. Um, but I think that the difference being that in Christian theology, one before baptism is part of the sinful world with its corrupt nature and rising from baptism, one is joining the new world in an um, longing for an uncorruptible nature. I think when Jake goes into the water to swim, He's one way, and when Jake comes out of the water to swim, he's the same way. Mm-hmm. so I think if he's making an allusion to baptism it's it's an it's a kind of fruitless baptism. It's the mm-hmm. sun go that it's like it's the same thing. it's what Ecclesiastes talk about, talks about mm-hmm. the seasons change, but everything stays the same.
1: I feel like I got to think about this because that actually right after this is when he then has the final conversation with. Brett. And so I wonder does his response to her change after he goes swimming? I don't know. Like that's, that's a good question.
0: A really good question. And I think it, if you look at that swim as sacramental, which I think you should, um, it's either there's, you can make one case. It's a failed sacrament, right? Because he gets out of the water and he goes around the same tree. Right. And, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate interpretation and probably my interpretation. The other way of, the other way of interpreting it is that he, um, is that it could have been a completed sacrament if he had stayed. Right. Um, but she kind of lures him away and turns him into a swine again. She's Circe again. Um, and so what fails is not the sacrament itself, the baptism itself, to be healing and cleansing to Jake, but his temptation to be lured away from the place of healing and go to Brett. And that would support more of David's interpretation, that he's not presenting the sacraments negatively, but the characters as not responding to them properly, which I am putting words in your mouth, but I, I think that that's a little bit of what you've been getting at. Um, so is it, is it that the cleansing failed or is it that Jake walked away from the potential cleansing? Those are the two different interpretations.
2: Yeah.
1: It's a really interesting passage mm-hmm. because it talks a lot about him being sort of tossed about, right? So I swam out trying to swim through the rollers, but having to dive sometimes. Then in the quiet water, I turned and floated. Floating, I saw only the sky and felt the drop and lift of the swells. I swam back to the surf and coasted in, face down on a big roller, then turned and swam, trying to keep in the trough and not have a wave break over me. It made me tired, swimming in the trough, and I turned and swam out to the raft. The water was buoyant and cold. It felt as though you could never sink. I swam slowly. It seemed like a long swim with the high tide and then pulled up on the raft and sat, dripping, on the boards that were becoming hot in the sun. I looked around at the bay. And in a book called The Sun Also Rises, when there's a moment when he's drying himself off off in the sun after a difficult swim, that's important. I looked around at the bay, the old town, the casino, the line of trees along the promenade, and the big hotels with their white porches and gold-lettered names. Off on the right, almost closing the harbor, with a green hill with a castle, or was a green hill with a castle. The raft rocked with the motion of the water. On the other side of the narrow gap that led into the open sea was another high headland. I thought I would like to swim across the bay, but I was afraid to cramp. I sat in the sun and watched the bathers on the beach. So one of the things that's interesting here is most or a lot of books are going to give us all this. Say you're reading Waugh or Graham Greene or something. And then you're going to get inside his head on what all these things sort of, these observations and this experience sort of means. But Hemingway kind of like gets us up to the moment where you're like, okay, so what's this mean to you? And then he doesn't give you what the character thinks it means. Which in a way, one of the reasons that I love Hemingway is because that feels so human like most of the time we, we have these observations and they feel like they mean something, but very rarely can we actually express what it reminds us of, you know? Like that's why poets write poetry, you know? Because <laughs> they see some image and then they spend all this time figuring out what the image actually means. And by the end of the poem, maybe they figured out what it meant. <laughs> um, and the, I just find that so compelling. So I don't know if I, I just, it feels like he gets us to the edge of these questions and then doesn't answer them. And that's why I don't that's why I kind of don't I have a hard time knowing exactly if how to how to express what I'm saying about his, his sacramental view of the world. I just think his life is his his view of the world is steeped in the sacramental vision and he doesn't really know what to do with it. Um and so I don't I don't necessarily know that I would go as far as Tim, but I also in the way you were interpreting it, Tim, but I also don't know that I would go as far as the more, you know, quite the positive take that. Heidi was suggesting that I might take with a scene like this. Hmm. Um, Because I just think so often characters, he just doesn't give us that moment where the character says, I had these experiences. And then especially the stuff where he says, there was the old town, the casino, the line of trees along the promenade, the big hotels, and then this big castle. And then a lot of people are going to say, it reminded me of when I was a kid or it reminded me of, you know, like a lot of books just give you that sort of, I mean, it goes back to the thing. The moment would have catharsis because he would reflect on it. but Hemingway. His books are sad and they stay sad because there's not catharsis for us as readers. And, that's exactly. runs well, and that runs counter to what most people do.
0: Well, and that goes back to the Fisher King legend though. and th- Because in the Fisher King legend, you have the wounded king and the wounded king can be healed by one thing only, which is that a knight comes to dinner and he sees... The knight observes the procession in the banquet hall, and the knight turns to the king and asks a question. And in the asking of the question itself is the healing of the king. Hmm. And that question is, what is the meaning of these things? That's the question. That's the healing question. Hmm. And there's, so that directly correlates to what you just said, David. And I think that is at the heart of every Hemingway novel. It is in the craft of his writing. It is in the displacement and aimlessness of his of the characters. It's embedded within the post-World War I generation and culture worldwide, is that we no longer have people saying, what is the meaning of these things with any kind of significant response. They're not even looking for that. That's, I think, the whole point. And I think that's why this is, why Jake is the Fisher King. Like there's, he's a man looking for somebody to ask the healing question and nobody's doing it, not even himself. And and so that catharsis is missing in the plot and it's also missing in the characters' responses to their perspectives on life, which you also brought up Mm. earlier.
2: That's great, Heidi. That's really great.
1: Let's let's touch on two final questions here. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. They must both might be complicated. I don't know. Leah asks a question that I'd like to like for us to at least address. Um, sh- sh- I'll I'll just read the whole question. Um, I understand Leah says that anti-Semitism was part and parcel of the class and authors of the Lost Generation. After World War II, there were about seventy years where it wasn't acceptable anymore. Now it's back with a vengeance. There's nothing Jewish about Robert Cohn. The quotas for Jews in university meant it was highly unlikely that he would be there. Jews weren't known as boxers either. And yet Hemingway goes out of his way to repeat over and over that this odious person is a Jew. I expect that from Hemingway. I found it slightly disappointing that you went on and on about Catholicism, yet never once did you mention that although this was perfectly acceptable in the 20s, that maybe this lost generation will not only continue to be lost, but by doing so, they simply continued the horrors of World War One while adding the horrible element of genocide against the Jews. I found nothing uplifting about this book. World War I upended the social structure of Europe. The genocides may have moved out of Europe to Asia, Africa, and every communist regime. It's been 100, of years, of, 100 years of Jake and his friends, and that is nothing to celebrate. And the conversation went on a little bit. Um, Tim, do you have any thoughts on, 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 on this? Because there is this question of anti-Semitism in, in this book. Um, so it, it's funny because, because
2: before I, I read that question online and before we read it, I thought, you know what, we haven't really talked about whether or not Jake is anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and his friends are anti-Semitic. And I think they are. The question that's a little bit, un- and, and I think Lee is right in saying anti-Semitism is rampant at this time in European culture. I, I don't know. She refers to anti-Semitism making a comeback. I feel like I'm sort of unplugged enough on the news that I, I won't comment on that. I neither denied nor uh assert. Um the question for me is was Hemingway doing this uh consciously? Was he consciously through the voice of his characters articulating an anti-Semitic point of view? Certainly. Does that mean that or if, was he maybe doing it subconsciously and thus kind of giving voice to his own anti-Semitism? I don't know the answer to that. I know that he had Jewish friends throughout his life, which makes me think that he was at least kind of partly aware of the kind of anti-Semitism of the early 20th century. Um, but I'm reluctant to say that he was or was not. I, I don't feel like I know his his life well enough to comment one way or another. But I do think that the characters are anti Semitic in a lot of their remarks about Robert Cohn. I do think that's true. And we didn't we, we probably could have talked about that in earlier um earlier episodes.
0: Absolutely. It happens over and over again in the novel there's despicable comments made about multiple um people groups and minorities and different religions mm-hmm. and there's there's uh, stereotypes everywhere in this novel and embedded within the conversation between the men and we we have talked about you know we, using the term toxic masculine this this distorted broken um masculinity is is one of the uh, core kind of indictments indictments within the novel, and um, and and there's comments made about multiple
1: and weirdly minorities rings true and now. people
0: groups. Yeah,
1: when and weirdly rings true today.
0: Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you're right; we haven't dug too much into it, um, as as we've missed so many things about this novel because there's so much richness and depth and nuance, and there's so many things that we. Never got to talk about.
2: You know, Heidi. I. It it seems to me like our mode in this show is we pick books that we really love, and we pick authors that we really love. And I think one of the things that I like about close reads is that we default toward praise and we default toward admiration, and that's kind of like what that's sort of like the leading edge of the show um and sometimes we backburner criticisms of the author or of the text
1: unless um, it's me complaining about Dostoevsky overwriting
2: right right <laughs> but even that that was kind of backloaded you know we kind of we kind of yeah. talked about that yeah. on the later episodes we didn't talk that in the earlier episodes and <laughs> i i i like that mode that we're in i don't think that um we're inclined to ignore the warts on certain authors or certain books. And maybe this is a wart because maybe this is an like Hemingway's unarticulated antisemitism, or maybe it's uh, like he's giving document to the antisemitism of the age. Either way, it's, it's not something that we celebrate, but I think that again, the mode of the show is to sort of delay talking, picking the author apart and picking the book apart.
0: And there's plenty of people doing that right now in the public square in classrooms and in higher education. Like there's that, that if you want to find that, that is easily found. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly right. I sometimes worry, I sometimes worry that because we're so um, very aware of kind of like the mode of discourse in higher education today, which is Sharply critical, like almost acidic, that I, I sometimes worry that we kind of step too far in the other direction. And, you know, maybe our readers will tell us that we offer too much praise, too much adoration. We should offer a little bit more criticism. I, I just think it's something that we should probably be aware of because. I love to kind of like relish the joy of these authors and these books, but I also don't want to look the other way at the very real shortcomings that a lot of them had, both as craftspeople and um, as kind of like ideologues. Yeah. As people. Yeah. As people.
1: I, I don't know enough about Hemingway, Hemingway's, you know, character to know how, to the degree to which he was anti Semitic. So I can't comment on that. The one thing I would say is that I actually think that he sympathizes as a, I think the book is way more sympathetic towards Robert Cohn than the characters are. Um, mm-hmm. I think Jake Agreed. is actually even a little more so sympathetic too. than it seems like totally on the surface. Agree. And so I don't think the book, for example, is considering Robert Cohn odious, to use mm-hmm. Leah's name, Leah's word. Um, I think that he, the book in general, has a way, thinks way higher of him than, say, Brett and the other characters do. And I think even Jake is thinks higher of him than he admits to everybody else. But mm-hmm. but you're talking about the idea of being positive and that leads us to this last question because, well, where is it? Okay, Sarah asks this, on behalf of our local group, how can a book that ends without hope or redemption be a heart book for the three of you? Or are we misinterpreting Tim's term? So as you said, Tim, we have we tend to be choose books that we often like or at least that the audience is very enthusiastic about. Um and or at least one of us likes. Usually, one of us is a big fan of a book that gets chosen. Um, so that that's related to this question about the idea of heart books and so forth. So, books that end without hope or redemption, and uh, they how can they be heart books? We have many thoughts, the three of us, on sad books. Um, so maybe this is a time to to talk about that. But Heidi, what about what was you, what, your thoughts on this question? Heart books. Books that don't seem to be hopeful or whatever.
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, this is a sad book. I don't know if I would say it ends completely without hope or redemption or hope of redemption. But I like the book because it's sad. And I like the book because it makes me feel sad and connect with like the very human emotion of grief. And I, I think that's one of the things I love about Hemingway is is that it opens up. I'm a I I mean we're all threes on the Enneagram, right? <laughs> um, we're productive driven people and I don't have a lot of time to be sad. But I yeah. live a sad life and uh, I've I know what it feels like to be sad. I've plenty of grief in my life. And so sometimes a book opens up a well that's cathartic and cleansing to me and internally. And I, I, this is one of those books that does that mm. for me. And that is why I like it. I don't feel any need to soften that. I don't feel any need to find a happy ending or a moral lesson in this book. I, I just like it because it connects me with the very human emotion of grieving the fall of the world and in the, these characters. And and I don't think that that means that I'm just like some sad person wandering around in grief. Like I I just sometimes feel that and need to feel that. And the fact that I have hope of salvation and redemption in my own life fills in that gap just fine. And I'm fine with just experiencing the weight of grief sometimes through a book.
1: Hmm. Tim,
0: I welcome that. Yeah, it's no, it's not a stranger to me. I I I. And I'm not just like wallowing. I just, that there's something about that, the fact that this book makes me feel grief that Mm -hmm. is cathartic and healing, I think, in some Mm -hmm. ways.
2: I'm so with you, Heidi, like right down the line of what you said. My mom told me, my mom, um, so I'm a pastor's son. And so my, my mom often played the role in our church of, she would be there when people were grieving, especially grieving the loss of a spouse or a parent or sometimes even a child. And she said when she was younger, she was eager to kind of foreshadow for the person who was in grief, all of the future benefits of the resurrection and of like the benefits of suffering. And then she said, people don't want that when they're in it. What they want is someone to sit down in the grief with them and just to sit down in the grief with them. And I, it made such an impression on me because it's true. It's 100% true. And this book is exactly that for me. It's just sitting down in grief with a group of people that I, despite all their foibles, and shortcomings, I really love them. I love the characters in this book. And I'm happy to just um, kind of join them for a time and feeling how it felt. And it adds a great amount of texture to my life because um, they're they are part of a history that I have inherited. And it's very, very real. And I have no inclination to mitigate their sadness and lostness because it's also, it's kind of part of my history. Not kind of, it's part of my history. Mm -hmm. I grew up in their country. I read their books. I was informed by their views. And I, 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 I benefit from joining them in that sadness.
1: Yeah, I I think I said this to you guys off air. I don't. I think unless a book is actively comedic, all books are sad,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then it becomes a question of catharsis. Um, and I think what you get with a book like this is, um, it's it's all it's sort of like a, it, you get the catharsis that change of knowing that changes on the way in some books, and in other books you get the you have to remain hopeful yourself. Um, that change is possible, and I think in a book like this, we have to provide the hope. Whereas in some books, the book tells you it's going to be okay, um, and usually that happens right towards the end, and then the book ends. Um, and so what this book does not provide is that moment of catharsis. Um, like you know, like the power and the glory at the end might have be offer a little bit of catharsis that sub that the hope is beginning. This book is has stasis at the end. And so we are the ones that have to be hopeful, um, hmm. because we don't know the end of their story. Uh, Josh Gibbs talks a lot about how there might be a sense in which real ca- literary characters are actually more real than we think. He has this like essay about how literary characters will be in heaven, <laughs> which is really so it's worth um worth reading from a few years ago. But I think that that um what we bring as readers, like I don't think we should insert ourselves into the book. But I do think that as readers, bringing our own faith and our own hope to a book is a meaningful part of experiencing that book um, and is one of the ways that we can, can submit to it without over, overwhelming it or being overbearing to it. Um, and so I think that's the big difference with this. This book doesn't have the catharsis, and so it puts the demand on us to be hopeful. It doesn't tell us that everything's going to be okay. It asks us, well, how much hope do you have? Um, and I think that's why it can be challenging and, and difficult. And I think that's why for me, because it offers that sort of a challenge, that sort of a challenge is what helps it be sort of a hard book for me. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: That's beautifully said, David. I kinda wanna clap.
1: <laughs> that was the like quietest golf clap I've ever, like a two like fingered index finger golf clap. clap. Well, thank
0: you.
1: Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Do we want to? Is there anything else you want to add about this book, either of you? Um, we're we're at the end here. We've been going for an hour and forty two minutes, so we should probably wrap this up. Wow! Next week we'll start talking about um, uh, Home, which is be ready. It's a Marilyn Robinson book. It's sad, <laughs> but maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. cathartically hopeful. Hopefully cathartic. I don't know. Whichever way it works, uh, maybe it offers more catharsis than than this book. But we'll have to. See. I would love to hear. Whether people think this book or Home is more sad as we're reading through it. Um, oh,
0: great question!
1: Uh, but I'd also like to know what books we've read on this show that are not sad. I'd love to know that because I, we were talking right. about to, *Anne of <laughs> Green Gables*. Win. *Anne of Green Gables* is so sad. There's a lot mm-hmm. of pleasure in it, but it's so sad that we are, we get this these, this catharsis at the end, which suggests that things are going to be hopeful later. Hannah um, Coulter, uh, Jaber Crow. The end of the sad. affair, Dostoevsky, Crime of Punishment, a lot of Shakespeare, even like even my favorite comedy, Much Ado Do About Nothing, is incredibly sad. Very sad. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe you could say P.G. Woodhouse's book isn't sad, but honestly, Bertie Wooster is kind of a sad guy. Yeah. <laughs> His patheticness is kind of sad. Um,
2: was Win in the Willows sad?
0: That's a sad.
1: A, at minimum, it's melancholy.
0: Every great story has a deeply sad part. Every one of them. Otherwise, you don't care. Yeah. But this book is not intended to delight or instruct. And there are people who think that that's the purpose of art. I mean, that was believed in Western culture for hundreds of years until the moderns came along and said it's also to feel. So I think... That's it's a good question. It's a valid question. What's the point if it's not delightful or instructive? It's a valid question, and I would say because I, I think accessing well, whole, human okay.
1: This is a whole pathos. conversation though. But like, how, to what degree, what degree of delight is necessary for it to be good? And degree delight in what sort of things? Like when I read a Hemingway, I get a lot of delight from watching how he crafts things. I get a lot of delight from the way he he phrases things and the way he creates characters and the way he can like describe the water in that, that scene I just read. So there's delight there. Does that not count? It's I mean, I think it does. Yeah.
0: I'm on well, your, th- I, I mean, I'm thousand percent <laughs> team yes on Hemingway. That, does, but does that know. fall under like
1: but, modernist delight?
2: Tim,
0: no, go
1: ahead. I,
2: yeah. I was just going to be silly and try to describe (laughs) the degree as being approximately like the research has been done. It's 38 degrees of pleasure is the appropriate (laughs) amount. If it's insufficient of that, I was starting to like go down that road, but
1: that tells me that it's time to wrap this episode up. It might be. (laughs) be. (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) thanks to everyone who submitted questions. As always, like I said, we will be diving into the Lord of the Rings over on the Patreon show next week. We will be doing the, uh, marilyn robinson book home next and the merchant of venice is over on the place the thing and of course there's the daily poem so lots of good content out there for you um i guess that's it do either of you want to offer any final thoughts have you, do you feel like you've no. said everything you need to say
0: okay. i mean definitely right. not said everything i need to say but <laughs> no i have no final thoughts <laughs>
1: Noted. Just watch uh, watch Heidi's blog. She's gonna start a blog after this. I'm
0: gonna start a um, blog today. It's happening. Yeah, exactly. I'm not doing to Exactly. Do
1: that. Um Okay, well, thanks to thanks to everyone for your questions as always. For Heidi White, for Tim Macintosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, happy reading.